0: Hello, welcome, and thanks for listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast. It's been a long summer here in Cambridge, but we're glad to be back and speaking with you. I'm Lewis DeFrates. I'm now a third-year PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge, and I'm here once again to present you with our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Today, we have a fascinating episode to share with you, but before I get to that, I'm going to explain how things are going to work for the upcoming academic year. I'll still be here every week to say hello and introduce our speakers, but we'll have a revolving cast of students from our PhD cohort to get down to the nitty-gritty of interviewing our seminar presenters. Sometimes that interviewer will be me, but more often than not it will be someone else whose own research matches up better with that of their interviewee, and you'll see the first instance of that this week. On that note, uh, you can see the schedule for our seminars for the year, and therefore the schedule for our podcast this year, by searching Cambridge American History Seminar using the internet search engine of your choosing. I'll also put the link to that schedule in the show notes uh, below wherever you listen to this. In short, it's going to be a really exciting year for the Cambridge American History Subject Group and for the podcast, and I'm very excited to have you along for it. So, on to today's episode. This week's paper is quite a unique one in that, for the first time at least since I've been at Cambridge, it's a co-written paper. That also means I've got twice the introductions to do for our speakers. So without further ado, Noam Magor is a lecturer in American history at Queen Mary University of London. Dr. Magor is a historian of the 19th and 20th centuries with a focus on the rise of industrial capitalism and its relationship to America's development as a nation. His first book, Brahmin Capitalism, Frontiers of Wealth and Populism in America's First Gilded Age, looks at how the Boston financial elite forged new investment strategies that shaped the trajectory of the United States between the end of the Civil War and the turn of the 20th century. He has also published more generally on the history of capitalism for Reviews in American History and the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and has written about Amazon for The Guardian. Stephen J. Link is an assistant professor in history at Dartmouth College. Professor Link is a historian of economics, business, and the intellectual history of capitalism. He is particularly interested in how theory and ideology can enhance our understandings of the history of business and business practices. His current book project explores the spread of Fordist business technologies and ideologies to Germany and the Soviet Union during the interwar period. His most recent article, How Might 21st Century Deglobalization Unfold? Some Historical Reflections, was published in New Global Studies last year. He has also written for the Business History Review. Their paper presented to the Cambridge American History Seminar is titled The United States as a Developing Nation, Revisiting the Peculiarities of American History. Rob Bates, a third-year PhD student studying Civil War pensions in the American administrative state in the 19th century, spoke to them both on Monday afternoon.
1: So, Noah and Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed your paper, uh, exploring the ways in which historians have addressed what Sven Beckett terms the second great divergence uh, you explore the numerous ways in which historians have considered the economic transformation of the United States between 1850 and 1950. Uh, the first question is quite a vague one. How did you approach this topic both individually and then what brought you to work on it together as a pair? Um,
2: great question. Um, of course, with, uh, there several starting points for this for this project this particular paper started maybe two years ago when we started to actually write it but it has much longer origins going back to when we were both working on our dissertations I think we're both uh, inspired by uh, the vision for the new history of capitalism which was coming up uh, at that point and we thought we were realizing it uh, particularly in Uh, taking issues that we thought were pushed to the backdrop uh, became kind of the background for American Mm -hmm. history and making them uh, into topics of inquiry. And sometimes, uh, so I was working on um, Boston financiers, Boston urban politics, uh, and the West um, as a way of uh, rethinking um, the transformation of American capitalism in the late 19th century. Stefan was working on Uh, Fordism globally, Uh, he can elaborate on that uh, in a bit. And I think both of our projects, in in some ways, were met with some skepticism and puzzlement, uh, perhaps with the idea that there isn't really a there there, Uh, meaning there isn't really a history or a contingent history there, but rather, um, you know, ultimately the endpoint was. Preordained to some extent, the structural forces would have asserted themselves, and therefore, what we were doing was perhaps adding some context, some some texture, some characters. But ultimately, we weren't really um, uh, addressing a, kind of an existing historical problem. So, in a way, as um, my project is completed and Stefan's completed uh, his book manuscript, we turn to. Um, trying to establish this as a historical problem and how is it that American capitalism emerged in the late 19th century in that particular way um, rather than seeing that as incipient or preordained or necessary to actually uh, identify this as a historical problem.
3: Yeah, I mean, you you see. Uh, well, first, uh, thanks for having us. It's yeah, great of course, to be here. Of um, you see in the paper, obviously, that it's not uh, a, a research paper, it's not based on primary research. It's uh, sort of a high level intervention that brings a lot uh, of scholarship together and tries to parse it in a particular way. And in that sense, this paper really originates with uh, conversations that go uh, back, as Noam said, to. Uh, when we were both uh, grad students at Harvard, uh, working on uh, different things, but, uh, you know, uh, encountering, uh, I think, a similar set of questions in different contexts in our own work. And uh, this paper is, for both of us, I think, a kind of uh, attempt to synthesize what were essentially, what was essentially an ongoing conversation. Uh, a conversation that, I think, as, as Noam put it rightly, was uh, kind of triggered for both of us by uh, a little bit of uh, the impression that there were issues within large swaths of the historiography that seemed to fly under the radar of analysis, that seemed to be simply assumed, what well, we identified as a kind of this, this, this crypto modernization templates in one version or another inform our narratives of, uh, of uh, uh, American economic history. Um, and, uh, we, we both, I think, uh, you know, perceived that in some way for the longest time, you know, it took us some time to articulate that uh, in a way. And also, you know, to make it legible to, or try to make it legible to, to other people. And so, you know, now we're both at a point where we've, uh, concluded major research projects of our own. And this is, you know, a kind of collaborative attempt to, um, broadcast these conversations.
1: So I suppose in, in your answer there, you're sort of, uh, hinting towards what the next question was going to be. Um, this is actually the first co-authored paper we've discussed on the podcast. Um, you both sort of alluded to the fact that you you know, you know, cover, between the two of you, a very broad sweep which allows you to take this kind of really ambitious project on, um, which seems to me like that's one of the benefits of working together on a paper is that you bring your separate expertises together and that gives you a much broader chronological range, a much broader thematic range. Could you possibly just sort of go into any other benefits you think there are to working together and maybe also and be careful how you phrase this but some of the drawbacks that you experienced in that process
3: well sure i mean so uh it's it's um it's a great process (laughs) Uh, at least uh it's been in my experience um i think no one will (laughs) uh, disagree (laughs) uh, diametrically. well i don't know we'll see (laughs) but um It, I mean, the the advantages are obvious, but I think they go uh, beyond this combination of uh, expertise. Uh, It's more, um, you know, for this particular paper, uh, I think it almost required co-authorship in the sense that it raises, you know, it's kind of provocative, it makes, it raises, you know, uh, puts a big question mark over, you know, essentially substantial uh, different types of literature um, and <laughs> you i think it's 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 uh, one uh, one big advantage of co-authorship is to be able to say we oui. You know, we perceive this as, uh, you know, a problem yeah, in this right. and that respect, rather than if you're alone, it's much harder to, I think, uh, make this kind of criticism. Uh, you know, I, w- I should say that one of our, uh, you know, jumping off points are not, not necessarily models, but uh, inspirations, and uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, subtly, more or less subtle in the paper. Uh, our inspirations was uh, this um, a classic book by uh, David Blackburn and jo- uh, Jeff Ely. Uh, on the German Sonderweg, the peculiarities of German history, a critique of modernization thinking, of modernization theory, um, co-authored, uh, uh, co-authored also for the good reason that at the time it was uh, very controversial. I think uh, you know, and it uh, is a little bit of a tip of the hat uh, in the paper, but uh, uh, f- for for good reason. So it's I think it's that kind of kind of project that in kind of I guess tactical sense requires co-authorship
2: yes I I agree that the benefits uh, go beyond just covering more ground I think uh, it's also uh, temperamentally as we were working on the paper so when one of us became pessimistic the other one could be more optimistic about the ability to to get it through to get it done Uh, and then really tweaking every line uh, collaboratively I think Um, So so there are obviously mechanical uh, benefits, but uh, I think intellectually it was a very beneficial process. And uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, intellectually there was actually very little substantive disagreement throughout the process. So we didn't really find ourselves disagreeing um, as much. It was more about how to make the points in the best possible way, uh, how to frame things. Uh, What needed to be enhanced? What could perhaps be trimmed? uh, These types of decisions that we were debating. Uh, But intellectually, the agenda was we converged, I think, to an amazing degree. So that's made it a very positive process.
3: Well, I mean, I think there were some disagreements now. But uh, (laughs) I mean, the the nice thing is if you're committed to uh, the project, you work through it. Uh, And... I mean, that's that's definitely a benefit, yeah. Okay, you'll yeah, tell
2: me afterward what what you're, what you're thinking of uh, in terms <laughs> of the substantive disagreement, but... Uh, no, I, I think, think part of we'll of bring it, it out
3: uh, in the open in the seminar. Okay. I
1: think the result was a really, really great <laughs> paper. I, I don't think the disagreements show up too clearly. Um, we'll get to the actual the meat of the paper now. Um, you start at the beginning of the, the paper by noting the general sort of failure of historians so far to come up with an adequate framework for explaining this kind of huge economic transformation. I wonder if you could just talk us through briefly some of the kind of failures that you see in each of the, the major scholarships th- well, that you consider.
2: You, you know, this is one of the things that maybe. I mean in the, the word failure, I think, is a loaded word, so we'd be reluctant to use it. But we're trying to frame a problem that I think, as Stefan said, has kind of flown under the radar. We're trying to make it more to articulate it, make it more explicit, frame it. Uh, with the benefit of a comparative framework and a more global framework, so it's not so much the fra- uh, the failure. It's just uh, I think there's something that's been so deeply baked into the the cake of American history, American historiography, uh, so much that gets taken for granted uh, that we want to problematize, and we're looking for for a good way to do that. Uh, essentially, to to put it you know quite simply, that there is throughout the 20th century when you were writing American history, you could assume that you are, you're writing about an incipient hegemon. You were writing about a, a nation that is uh, destined to become um, a world power, uh, a leading industrial nation. Uh, and that has been kind of an implicit assumption in large swaths of the historiography. Um, And I think now is a good time to revisit that and say, why is that? That's actually from a global comparative perspective rather than something that seems almost natural or necessary. um, Kind of linear progression of the direction of American history to actually uh, think of it as quite weird and atypical, out of the ordinary, something that really needs to be dug into.
1: And as you note in the paper, I think really concisely um, noting American historical atypicality—sorry—is not the same as restoring this kind of American exceptionalist narrative. It's merely problematizing this kind of broader issue. I wonder if you could maybe sort of just unpack that. Absolutely. I mean, it's
2: quite—I would say, or uh, we would say—it's precisely the opposite. Yeah. Right. That to. um, there is an atypicality to the American case. I think that is observable. It's difficult to, to deny. Uh, the question then becomes how do you make sense of that? Uh, how do you explain it historically? Is it due to some um, deep, some kind of something in the American DNA, um, something, some kind of exceptional virtues of American or some kind of uh, unique uh, features of uh, American history? Or is it due to observable uh, political econo- economic institutions, policies, um, uh, movements, uh, turning points, etc.? So, So it's precisely, to point out the atypicality is precisely what makes it possible to then uh, push back against ideas about American exceptionalism.
3: I think what also plays a role there is um, you know, this move that we try to do in the paper to uh step out of the American context mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, go somewhere that you know, might come out of left field, uh, the the literature on East Asian developmental states, and simply say, you know, there's a literature which deals with precisely these kinds of reversals in the global division of labor, which are very momentous. Is there something, you know, can we turn the tables? Is there something there that we can project back in order to understand anew, uh, The American economic trajectory without constantly referring back to analytical modes and parameters that are ultimately derived from the American experience because that brings you back to you know ultimately to exceptionalism so we try to do that very purposely
1: yeah and and one of the things I really liked about your your paper is you sort of manage the tension between factors that are um, internal to the United States such as what you call factor endowments uh, territory resources It's political configuration of political institutions. You consider those alongside the broader global specialization of labor that's that's occurring at the same time. And I think you handle that tension really adeptly in showing both how America has this atypicality in its experience, but also is part of a broader change. I think that's really effective the way you do that.
3: Well, I think, you know, I think the, the key thing to keep in mind there is that if you want to understand the problem of, you know, development, and I think also we say this in the paper, not as simply, uh, you know, there used to be, or there's still uh, this you know as literature, why are some so poor, why are they so rich, uh, you know, as, as development, not simply to not understand it simply as growth. But again, right. structural economic transformation, but within a global economic order that is constantly contested. So development is never simply, you know, a national story. It is always relational. It is relational to a larger global economic order that is structured in a particular way with its own, right. uh, you know, civil attorneys, <coughs> core and periphery, its global division of labor. And so that's where these two, um, two, uh, two uh, uh, perspectives converge. Uh,
1: so towards the end of the paper, um you offer up the Midwest and Michigan in particular as a particularly apposite example for your framework for applying this idea of how, how America fits into the uh, developmental state literature. So I suppose this is two questions. First, what recommends the Midwest and Michigan in particular to you? Uh, and secondly, you know, did you consider other regions of the United States and is exploring that internal regionality something that maybe does give America its kind of
2: historic atypicality? Yes. I and I'm sure, I mean, part of the, uh, that section of the paper that you're referring to, not to give too much away, but the punchline of it, it ends, it kind of builds back from Fordism. So Fordism is the kind of endpoint, the kind of uh, really momentous uh, um, departure in global economic history, uh, famously that took place on the Michigan frontier, which is kind of an unlikely, odd uh, departure. Uh, that we draw attention to. So this Midwestern section kind of builds up to that. Uh, But then zooming out from Detroit, uh, if you look at the context of the Midwest and you put it alongside uh, other regions in the world economy at around that time, uh, something, I mean, at least maybe for me, I'm more of the Americanist in the uh, the collaboration, something that feels like the vanilla type capitalism Mm -hmm. Uh, the plain capitalism that just is um, almost unremarkable uh definitely in uh by in contrast to the South, which uh has really fascinated historians i think in in the last few years uh you kind of when you put uh the u s um, you situated comparatively, it's actually the Midwest that really looks very odd uh, in terms of its spatial patterns, in ter- terms of its industrial geography. Uh, all of these patterns seem very much um, at odds with what you see uh, globally. So this is what drew us to to that region uh, in particular.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, the, uh, the uh Origins of uh, the automobile industry are an interesting case in point when you think about um, you know, how do we rely on uh, Implicit modernization templates and then uh, you know these gestures towards exceptionalist myths that uh, This is is really a great example because uh, It's it's funny if you look at the literature on the automobile industry nobody seems to ask the question why Uh, Is it actually, you know, come out of the United States? It seems to surprise no one. It's as though it simply emerges. It's assumed that it would simply emerge naturally from the onward march of American economic progress. Right. And what we want to say is, no, it's actually, that's, it's like a major departure. If you think about this again in broad comparative terms, this is what sticks out. And then uh, if you look at how people explain, you know, why Detroit people sometimes ask that, automotive historians, uh, you know, will say, and at the end of the day, they can't explain it. They will say things like, well, you know, Detroit was lucky to have uh, a Ransom Olds or a Henry Ford. Uh, you know, these genius entrepreneurial American types, which is essentially, you know, recourse to exceptionalism. That's not a, that's not an explanation. Right. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, essentially recourse to exceptionalist myth. And by saying, let's look at this as a process that has political decisions about economic development baked into it and that gives you a substantive historical account of how this actually works so that would be you know a, a, an example of how we try uh, to uh, uh, you know get leverage uh, to this large uh, you know these modernization templates and these exceptionalist templates
1: and one of the things you you mentioned in the paper that really recommended this this idea of placing america in a developing state framework was Uh, I think both of your work speaks to the fact that markets are politically created, that uh, America has had this tradition in lieu of what historians have often argued in the past of quite significant intervention in the economy. I really wanted to ask you if there were any specific areas of this comparison that sort of slightly troubled you in the writing process, whether there were any sort of puzzles where you really did struggle to to fit America into this developing state framework. Uh, Were there any things that really sort of caused you a lot of problems in that?
3: Well, I mean, uh, the, the the problems are uh, the problems are essentially this is the research agenda. I mean, the the the, the paper does not, uh, you know, we're not saying we have this figured out, we have an answer. We're essentially right. what we want to do in this paper is raise a question, um, you know, raise it in a way so you have to do this by stepping out of these familiar parameters. Uh, provincialize American trajectories, create a distancing effect on American economic development. Say, like, let's denaturalize it as as historians, this is what we do best. And then let's think about how does this work in a kind of broad global comparative perspective? And immediately it's clear, you know, you have to talk about the state. Now, how this works in practice? You know, that's essentially the research agenda. And I think this is, uh, you know, the work that um, you know, partially we hope um, ourselves to do a little bit, you know, partially we hope to uh, maybe interest other, uh, you know, other historians and in, uh, you know, interest them in being interested, I guess, yes, in correct. the question. Yes,
2: I would say um, the challenge is to unlearn so much of what we've learned and accepted as a natural as uh, a natural part of what American history is about. So that's the challenge. And maybe this speaks back to the collaboration, because when you raise these questions by yourself, a lot of other people look at you a little funny and say, you must be crazy to be asking these types of questions. Uh, these, like Henry Ford, for example, this would have happened regardless. This would have, America would have uh, gone down that path. Uh, we see this incipient much much earlier, and this was somehow bound to happen. Uh, so you really need someone else to say, "No, no, you're not crazy. I see the same thing. There is this tendency." Um, so I think, remarkably, I think in this case the challenge was was in that in that analytical kind of um, this entrenched analytical mode to kind of back out of it. Uh, rather than uh, perhaps um, much more even than learning something uh, something new.
1: Now, you've, you've already uh, sort of answered this question, and you've certainly got a huge uh, amount of material to draw on, but it's one thing we ask all of our guests. Um, are there any books or articles in particular that really kind of influenced your thinking in this?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, I'll say uh, that for me, um, really uh, kind of epiphany was um maybe a book that will you know is rather unlikely it's uh, a chalmers johnson's uh book on uh, the japanese developmental state it's called mm-hmm. uh, midi and uh, the japanese miracle it's about uh, the ministry of uh, international trade and industry which um well, oversaw directed not so much orchestrated but you know directed uh the japanese developmental state as chalmers johnson and who's a political scientist, actually, uh, and this is written in the early 80s, uh, argues you know, this is a process begins in the late 20s and essentially goes all the way up to uh, the 1980s. So a uh, you know, purposive state action to foster a globally competitive industry uh, to rectify comparative underdevelopment uh, in this uh, you know, conflictual mode where different stakeholders uh, essentially keep bargaining over well, the 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 correct direction uh, uh, in, in in which in which to go, and what was compelling to me about this again is not so much you know the story is compelling in and of itself, obviously, but I'm not a Japanese historian uh, certainly, so much of uh, this empirically was new to me. But what was compelling about this is simply the way this perspective breaks down these um, unhelpful dichotomies between uh, you know state policy politics really in economics, state policy and markets. Uh, so, so this deeply ingrained, well, you know, myth ultimately that these are uh, separate spheres that stand in tension to each other when precisely the question is actually how do they precisely interact? So that's really the question. And here's one empirical example where you can see how this works in practice. So that was that was, uh, for me, uh, you know, very informative. And uh, you can see how this is reflected in the paper.
2: Yes, I mean, I, I hate to repeat what you, what you said, but it's a similar kind of literature that I think maybe came in towards the, you know, maybe um, the latter part of the process Definitely. where if initially we had a critique ready, but we didn't have quite, uh, we are kind of gesturing at something. I think uh, a lot of this literature about the developmental state, uh, for me, a lot of these recent books about China, how China ex- escaped the poverty trap um, and other, other books that really look at uh, Chinese development uh, really inspired me to, to actually, I mean, n- not to say that it's, it's a similar thing, but there are some echoes and it actually is a very different reference point to think right. about the U.S. Uh, in relation to, uh, to those books uh, as opposed to uh, thinking about it in relation to uh, you know the more conventional business history uh, narratives that often frame these types of these types of inquiries so you would
1: say that, that a lot of these ideas for both of you were sort of in the air they were percolating already and it was coming across this kind of wider developing like, state literature that gave you that kind I of... think
2: what we had percolating is deep satisfaction with right. the existing uh, like uh, you know, Stefan provided some some good examples of just deep satisfaction with the existing answers, and and then you know n- not to be too specific, but going into rooms with people who seem to be very happy with those answers. So so the ability the the kind of trying to find leverage, uh, trying to find a point of traction where you can problematize this issue. Um, I think. This was the driving motivation for much of the process, and I think this uh, developmental state uh, literature, part of it, I have to give some credit to my brother, who is a sociologist and and kind of contributed parts of this. Um, um, I think this really uh, gave us that last leg of the the journey, perhaps.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's simply... You 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 try to do something uh, theoretically, you know, new, uh, and so you know you you can never start from scratch, and so you kind of look about uh, where where can you turn to for answers? Where where are points of departure? And uh, you know, we didn't see them in the existing business history. We didn't see them in uh, institutionalist economics. Uh, we didn't see them in uh, you know, this kind of nationally focused American history. Uh, Americanist historiography and then you come across something where you say, well oh wait a second, here is the nucleus of what might give you analytical leverage to actually answer this question. Uh, and you know that's that's sort of when this clicks. So um, in, in that sense, it did come fairly late in the process. I mean, again, this is, this is sort of you know the product of many years of conversations and uh, uh, and so this came fairly late, but in a sense, uh, you know this is, this is uh, the moment where you see like, OK, now, now we can maybe you know, fit these pieces together. So right. in that sense, it was really important.
1: So two questions that we, we always end with and we ask uh, all the guests. Uh, you don't have to collaborate in answering these. These are a few <laughs> separately. Um, so one is, which is the most interesting place that
2: you've been for research? West Roxbury in Boston, of course. <laughs> um. Well, I've been... <laughs> you can explain that I mean, if you want. I mean, don't uh, have to. it's a joke because my wife always makes fun of me for choosing Boston as the kind of focal point for my first book, which really didn't lend itself to uh, much travel and uh, exotic locations. Uh, so one of the key archives was actually the city archives in uh, West Roxbury, which I used to take the bus to, <laughs> uh, going through the old neighborhoods of the city and thinking about the project. Uh, but it really was a very exotic um so yeah i have to say i mean there is this you know
3: uh, there's uh, this it's kind of like a running gag among historians you know you go somewhere to do quote unquote research and it's it's you know a great place to visit otherwise for all uh, other reasons and, and that and from that uh, from that point of view i also didn't choose my research very wisely i did a lot of research i spent uh, much time in detroit in <laughs> automotive archives obviously in in central russia um where uh you know the soviet autom- automobile industry was built up but to me it would to me that never really converged i feel like um you know the the stuff that's um interesting or fascinating in the archives happens in the archives <laughs> and uh and uh, so in that sense uh nizhny novgorod in central russia was uh, a fascinating place to go
1: yeah great so the last question that we ask that we always end on is um which is your favorite album and you don't have to come
2: to any consensus on this whatsoever
3: uh, you go first
2: i think led zeppelin ii <laughs> well
3: <laughs> uh that's that's very interesting. I didn't know you listened to Led Zeppelin. No pressure, Stefan. Um, um, that's a really good pick. Yeah, no. Um, how can I one up? How can I one up that? I um, I really like um, the penultimate Metallica album, Death Magneto. I think it came out pretty much ten years ago. Uh, I guess that dates me.
1: <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> thanks very much for sharing those with us, and also for discussing your research, uh, Norman Stefan. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. We'll be back next week with another interview from another presenter at our seminar. In the meantime, do let your friends know about what we're doing here. Give us a rating and a review wherever you do those sort of things. Follow us on Twitter at Camericanist and get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Thanks very much.